gap in the information usually sends me into a panic and flying for the nearest library or reference book, but this time it was a chance to just think about where the stories might have come from. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Ellen O'Brien, winner of History Through Fiction's first annual short story contest and the author of the story, The Hills That Hold Me. Those stories depend on the people who are telling them, and I think they get what they need from them. Um, the answers that they are looking for, they will make them the meaning that they need from that story. is a secondary teacher from Western Australia where she lives with her husband and their perpetually furious rabbit, George. Having completed her doctorate on the servant narratives buried within the English country house tradition, Ellen enjoys any story that brings hidden voice into the light. Today I'll be talking to her about her short story, The Hills That Hold Me. Well Ellen, I wonder if you could just start by giving us a little bit of your background as a writer. Um, my background as a writer has been fairly brief in terms of fiction, um, mostly because I've been so occupied with academic writing. Um, I have recently finished my PhD and started working as a teacher over the last couple of years. So a lot of my time has been taking up with kind of referencing and editing and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's been a real pleasure in just the last year or so to really start writing fiction. Um, I've been a avid reader of it for a long time, of course. Um, but haven't really given it a proper go until recently. So it's been fun. So who is Melangel and what is her story? And I'm, I'm specifically interested in how it has changed through her martyrdom and what you, what you think about the effects of kind of making her into this mythical figure. So Melangel is an early Christian saint. She is not someone who is um, very well known or even written about that much. Um, she was born in Ireland in the in the sixth century um, and came across to Wales, where she established a um, a nunnery and um, lived out her days there. Um, she wasn't her her story is very limited. There's really not a lot of information out about her. And writing her story was more a work of imagination and creativity than um, in-depth research, I would have to say. So I spotted her story um, somewhere on the internet and something about it just caught my interest. And I thought about her over the years. She was just one of those figures that sort of lingers in the back of your imagination. And the more I wondered about her, I wondered whether her story is true. So She's the patron saint of hares and rabbits, among other things, which I think is why she stood out to me, because we have a little bunny called George, so that was um, probably why I ended up reading about her. Um, 
but that's kind of all there is about her. She won the patronage of a local landowner and that's where the money for her um, her um, religious order came from and for the abbey that was built there. But beyond that, there's not very much. And so I filled in the gaps, I um, have to admit. It wasn't, um, and that was quite, quite, um, quite fun really because I'm so used to having to fill, you know, a gap in the information usually sends me into a panic and flying for the nearest library or reference book. But this time it was a chance to just think about where the stories might have come from. So the tradition of hagiography in the middle in the Middle Ages, like the early Middle Ages, was really just the stories that were told about saints. And they are all about um, achieving a sainthood for a person or about um, increasing their cult following um, on earth, I suppose. And the hagiography that was told about her had to come from somewhere. So I wondered who had told it and whether it was true or not. And that's kind of what my story is about. So you say this is called hagiography, is that right? Yeah, so in um, in the Middle Ages, a lot of the writing, a lot of the stories that people were telling or recording, um, they were the lives of saints. Um, I think it's difficult to imagine, or really, like we can, but um, just quite how big a part religion played in people's lives. It was not only their, um, obviously, you know, the guiding principles behind their faith and and the laws but it was also entertainment and storytelling and um part of those sort of colorful characters that were stock figures that everybody knew were the saints and so they were the stories that were being told about them and especially in those early um sort of fifth sixth seventh centuries um in England and Europe the hagiographies were being sort of established around that time um, about some of those early saints and that was around about the time when Melanger um, was was living and then achieved her sainthood and um, yeah. Well, I, I find that quite fascinating but I, I'm curious what do you think about now you, you talked a little bit about filling in the gaps of history for your story but what do you think about the people who kind of latched on to Melangel's story and, and made her a martyr do you think um what what do you think are some of the effects of that and is that okay or do we need to revisit some of these saints do you think or or maybe just to keep it specific to Melangel do you think she should be revisited to figure out who she really was I think that would be fantastic if somebody was to revisit her and take on that as a research project um it's it's difficult in that time period because obviously there's such a scarcity of written resources um, that have survived but um, we can fill in the gaps I suppose. Um, The the why of why we tell those stories I think is another interesting thing and it would I'm not quite sure how someone would research that because those stories depend on the people who are telling them and I think they get what they need from them um, the answers that they are looking for, they will make them the meaning that they need from that story. So um, in when I was looking at Melangel's tale, um, I created her as a figure who was important to local women um, because some of the, the strengths or abilities that she supposedly had were around healing and um, knowledge of plants and the forest and animals. And 
something about that just spoke to a very nurturing um, maternal kind of a person so that was that was purely me making a jump um, on my part nothing based on fact that I could find Um, but later in the story um, I make her the characters tell a story of sanctuary and protection around Melanger which is precisely what they need at that time so I think the stories of the saints for the people who were telling them they were always going to be a bit, be about what they needed to know what they needed to um, to find or understand or uh, to realize within those stories now the story is set you know many years after Melanger's actually you know her death um and she she, we don't i don't want to give away too much um but there's an event that happens a very tragic event can you give us a little bit of the historical context of what melangel was witnessing in your story the hills that hold me Mm. so um i'm afraid this might be a bit disappointing for a podcast that's about history through fiction um but this is very much a case of looking at the broad sweeps of history, the probable and possible scenarios that could have happened in that time period. So the event that I was referencing occurred about six or 700 years after her death um, in during the reign of Edward I. So that was a time when um, England was, there were a lot of incursions into Wales. Edward I built a lot of castles along the Welsh-English border. And so there were quite a lot of conflict and skirmishes between the Welsh and the English at that time. Um, so it's that conflict that I'm placing my characters within um, and they are hoping that Mel and Jill will be able to get them out of that situation. I, I don't think you have anything to be apolog- apologized for. It's very well done. And I, I appreciate how you use storytelling to, to bring aware- awareness to things that happen in history. Can you tell us about your process of, of studying landscapes to create a story about a historical figure? Yeah, so um, I am a firm believer that landscapes are something that reflect our characters and uh, both the way that they view the world as well as their moods or feelings. Um, The landscape in this story is very much the Welsh forests. Um, It's a place of refuge for Melangel during her lifetime. She makes um, a lot of connections with the various plants, animals, trees, Um, and the forest, the hills, the forest and hills is as much a character in the story as the people because it goes from a space that is revered and um, full of a wealth of plants and herbs and knowledge and it becomes a place over history that becomes like Melangel, forgotten, abandoned um, and sort of left to the elements. People take what they want from it and at the end of the story, it achieves a kind of revitalization that actually mirrors the conservation work that's going on in Wales and England, which um, I think has been fantastic. Like, for example, red kites are a beautiful bird that um, were once prolific um, towards the middle of the century. They re- there was a risk that they would become extinct, and recent recent conservation efforts in the last fifty years have seen their population soar. Um, no pun intended, but they that's just one example of the animals that features in the story. And can you tell us a little bit more of about your research as an academic? Um, I think I read that you study English country house tradition. I'm not really sure what that means. Yeah, sure. So, um, gosh, I haven't talked about this in a while. It's a bit of a treat. Um, the country house tradition in England refers to the great stately homes that 
um, adorn the countryside and really made up a huge part of the social fabric for hundreds of years. So there is a literary tradition that accompanies those places quite often. They were the, um, the people who owned those houses were the patrons of poets, authors. It's where books like Brideshead Revisited or, um, sorry, Brideshead Revisited, um, poems like Ben Jonson's to Pencehurst or even works by Jane Austen were written in or about these country houses. Um, I was focusing on the lives of servants in that literary tradition and quite often they are missing. So we're really reading the gaps and the silences um, to find out where those servants existed, where the small references would be made to them and then filling the gap using texts like servants' memoirs or letters um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, this tradition, though, of course, extends right back to the Middle Ages when the first real great houses were being built. So um, 14th century texts like um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, that revolves around what would have been an early country house or estate. Um, and that's probably where my interest in the, the medieval period comes in um, with those great houses that emerged out of roughly the 14th century. Can you talk about some of the other, other than Melangel, who, who else have you had a chance to dive into to do some research and bring about some more historical information about their lives? Um, another 14th century figure that I'm especially interested in, um, have been for the last few years, I suspect it was probably just a full-blown procrastination project so I could avoid doing my PhD, but um, this woman is called Jeanne de Belleville, um, or Jeanne de Clisson is probably her more well-known name. Um, she was a French noblewoman who lived in, in and around Brittany um, during the mid-14th century, and when her husband died, she basically became a pirate and um, did everything that she could to get her lands back and assure the future of her children um, to shore up their, their lands, their status, their inheritance. And she lived through a very interesting time. She was right smack bang in the beginning of the middle of the Hundred Years' War. Um, so you, we've heard of, you know, the Battle of Cressy, um, the these sorts of these kind of famous battles that you hear of between the French and English and she was she was in and around those um, supplying troops with ships according to some um, accounts or um, you know living in the English court while her country was at war with the English king and so it's a fascinating tale of changing sides and um, changing allegiances and of course as is often the case with medieval women, the only references that we have to them exist in the accounts of the men that surrounded them. So her name only really appears in um, legal documents or um, letters that were written by the King of England or the King of France. And um, yeah, her stories, I've, I've recently published a book um, translating a 19th century French poem that was um, all about her life, but of course, very romantic, very fanciful and sentimental, written right at the height of the romantic period. Um, so we take it with a grain of salt, but it is there. It tells the tale of her life. And I try to fill in the gaps with a bit more of a social history of what the Hundred Years War context really was, what was actually happening when she was alive. And have you or will you be writing any fiction about her? 
I would love to. It's um, it's a little bit daunting to quite know where to start such a um, such a novel. I think when you've lived with somebody in in your head for such a long time, written about them, read about them, thought about them all the time, it's um, it feels like quite a big responsibility to put them on paper in the correct way. And she's quite a challenging figure as well. Um, you know, we're talking about a woman who attacked villages and farms and killed innocent people because they lived on the lands of her enemies and those kind of um, morals obviously are very difficult to align with ours today so what might have been a pragmatic choice for her is a monstrous act for somebody um, today looking at it and to write a character like that is fairly tricky. Yeah I can imagine but she sounds fascinating yeah, she sounds sounds amazing. I'm I'm really hoping that somebody spots the um the sort of fic, the historical social historical um text that I've got there and you know writes a screenplay or writes a fantastic novel and that I get to read that. But in the meantime, I am I am drafting um, little bits and pieces and hoping to come up with a bit of a plan of how to write her life. Can you talk? You know, you you did talk earlier about um, kind of being new to fiction, um, but you, you've certainly found a way into the craft. Uh, you won our short story contest with this really brilliant story. Um, can you talk about how long that has taken you, some of the, you know, the path you have taken to learning the craft of fiction and some of the ups and downs of it? Mm, sure. Um, I think think this may be a fairly cliched English teacher answer but I think it has to do with really just reading a lot. Um, there would be few times in my life when I didn't have a book in or near my hand and I'm sure my parents can attest to that but I just think reading a lot is such a good way to understand how words work and to understand what words you like and how to put them together. So um, I know that this story is heavily heavily influenced by authors like Hannah Kent a wonderful Australian author particularly her work Devotion um, and writers like perhaps Bridget Collins or um, Laura Purcell who really just play around with the structure of text I find that very interesting like the way that different structures can reveal bits of information to an audience um, at different times and often changes the way that we think about things um, in, you know, a fairly rapid succession. Another um, absolute master of that is Hannah Gatsby, an Australian um, stand-up comic. So I think I've read, well, she's not, yeah, she's a stand-up comic and author, memoirist, many things, but um, I think I've just read and absorbed and followed the lessons of the stories that I like, to be honest. And then um, the mechanics of writing, I suppose, are something that I had learnt through the years of, you know, academic writing and study and um, perhaps just that feedback process as well. I think it's really helpful to have solid friends who you can give your work to and know that they'll treat it with kindness and care and um, give you helpful suggestions when things don't make sense or when you've overdone something a little bit and perhaps also leaving time in between. I've never been very good with um never been one of those people who leaves things to the last minute so I think writing something letting it sit for a while and coming back to it has been a big help because you can see something with fresh eyes 
you mentioned your rabbit George, and he's also in your your bio. So tell us about George. Oh, um, there's not really very much to tell about George. It was just kind of amused me that we had a rabbit, and this um, happened to be a story about a saint who looked after rabbits. Um, I'm not a crazy rabbit lady. <laughs> Um, we just, we well, I've never, I've never had a rabbit as a pet. Uh, um, w- what kind of a personality does George have? Oh, a fairly destructive one, typically. Yeah, um, yeah no, he's he's lovely. He's um, um, a very friendly, um, sociable part of our family. And you know, when friends come over, he's always in the mix. Um, he's quite like a dog, really. I suppose in that sense, just um, yeah, he just kind of just roams around the house and. Um, has a litter tray like a cat so it's all very clean um and yeah that's that's what having a rabbit is like and you have to watch out for any power cords or shoelaces that might be lying around because they'll go oh i bet yeah (laughs) so can you tell us a a little more what about what you're working on next as a writer is it is it more academic are you i mean are you trying to work on a novel what what's next for you Mm, um I've been stepping away from the academia a little um, and really embracing life in education Um, and there simply isn't enough hours in the day for both, unfortunately. So writing short stories has been, um, it's, I really enjoyed looking at that. So I probably will continue trying to write a few short stories. Um, But yeah, I I think the next project will have to be the life of Jeanne de Clisson in some kind of um, in some shape or form, whatever it may be. And where can readers find more about you? Um, well, you can check out my Instagram, which has very little of interest in terms of writing on it, but come and say hi if you would like to. Um, and the text about the life of Jeanne de Belleville is available on Amazon, so we can provide the link for that perhaps. And um, that's all really. Well, Ellen, congratulations on winning History Through Fiction's first annual short story contest with The Hills That Hold Me. It's a lovely story. And of course, our judges loved it. I loved it. Um, It's just really brilliant. And I'm so glad that that you submitted it to us. Thank you so much, Colin, for the opportunity. And I look forward to reading all the other works by the other contestants. Sounds good. Thanks, Ellen. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, Colin. Pause the interview because I forgot to ask you a question. Is it Melangel? How, how do you pronounce her name? Um, look, I'm assuming it's Melangel. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, that would be okay. my best guess. Nah, that's what I'll go with. And Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. We'll say it with confidence and they'll believe us.